Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice. Giving you a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. Today, Grace sits down with friend and colleague, Bernard Arnabosch. Bernard is the founder of Fit to Train Human Performance Systems in Vancouver, British Columbia. From strength and conditioning to physical therapy, Bernard has worked with teams and athletes from the NHL, NBA, MLB, NFL, CFL, and MLS. On this episode, we discuss running a multidisciplinary clinic, finding your blind spots as a clinician, the impact of scar tissue on movement, and the importance of creating human connection with your patients. So let's get going with this episode of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. Well, welcome to the podcast. This is, this is a big day for me because I get to surf some conversations with probably one of our most distinguished uh, allies in this movement journey. Banad Anabash was introduced to me by Kyle Kiesel. And I honestly think Kyle just looked at me with not many words and said, the force is strong with this one. So since that day, <laughs> Banad has been the Jedi. And even though most of us in FMS that are instructors are his senior, he has been an equal since day one. And when we're solving cases in the corner and we have our own healthcare issues, the one thing that nobody is reserved in saying is, well, what's Banad think? Because that's probably closer to right in the grand scheme of things. And the other thing I want everybody to know is that uh, you've never told anybody how good you are. You just show them. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Gray. No. Um, this, is, this is fun. And I want all our listeners to realize you have played every role in movement and fitness and healthcare that most of our listeners do. So Tell, tell our listeners exactly what your role is now, but then take them back in, in your evolution professionally and in exercise science, in physical therapy, and osteopathic uh, healthcare, and then right on up to what you've been doing the last five or six years. Yeah, so um, I'm, uh, you know, the token Canadian on the uh, FMS team. So I live in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And simply because uh, it's close to uh, Whistler, which is where I, uh, that's where my happy place is. Uh, do a lot of skiing and mountain biking. So anyways, I've, uh, I, I'm sort of the quarterback at a uh, multidisciplinary sort of health and wellness hub here in Vancouver. And we've got about 14 clinicians on our team. Um, and is that like a freestanding mini facility, multidisciplinary facility? Because I guess that would be an upgrade. If I lived in Canada, I've got structured healthcare, but then if I want an upgrade, if I want access to a little bit more, I'm proactive, I'm the same person taking multivitamins, I come your way, right? Yeah, exactly. So okay. we call this like extended medical care. Okay. So if you're if you, anything um, emergency, like if, you know, trauma or life-threatening, obviously you're going to the hospital and that's obviously covered. Your basic medical care uh, is covered by your family physician. But anything like physical therapy, chiropractic, dental, um, uh, for, you know, optometry, things like that, uh, most people have extended medical coverage. So either their work provides some sort of insurance on top of what healthcare covers um, but, but yeah, so we're, we're sort of an extension of the healthcare model. 
uh, and people either pay out of pocket to be here or they've got some sort of coverage that's that covers it and we've got about uh just over four thousand square feet and about uh nine private treatment rooms and just some big open space which is which is what i like with the equipment all on the side and lots of space for us to move and uh and we sort of uh you know as this evolved i realized that you know we do need uh different expertise uh you know on the same bus so we've got physical therapists chiropractors uh massage therapists we have a naturopathic doctor uh, who helps us look at the chemical side of things we have a chinese medicine doctor just a different perspective we've got exercise physiologists and and um i i sort of uh you know play the quarterback if you will mm-hmm. uh and but but we all i always say like there's a lot of places that have different practitioners working under the same roof contributing to the same rent and calling it a uh, multidisciplinary clinic where people can come and shop for different things mm-hmm. but they're the you know they're sort of driving uh their care um you know if if they go to the chiropractor and it doesn't work they book an appointment with a physical therapist and if that doesn't work they go somewhere else whereas we truly work together and sometimes we have more than one practitioner in this in the room with a with a patient our clients see us interacting um you know on the regular and obviously we we've got an online sort of charting system where mm-hmm. everyone has access to if someone's prescribing an exercise or a, a vitamin everyone you know gets notified uh and and really you know i i try to uh get away from being jack of all trades, master of none. And, and, you know, it's gotten to a point where, uh, I'm working myself out of this, out of this business where I, I just do the intake and I go, okay, you need to go over here. You need to go over here and you need to talk to this person and see me in three weeks when this is sorted. Uh, and, and so, yeah, we have a lot of fun. I, you know, I, I dabbled in the, uh, um, professional sport world for a bit. Uh, I was the director of therapy for our hockey team here, the Vancouver Canucks. Mm-hmm. And, and it just, you know, I guess I'm, I'm too naive to sort of play along with the politics and, you know, I'm going to be open and frank here. And, uh, it just, yeah, I couldn't play that game. And, you know, I wanted to go and change the world. And, uh, you know, I, you know, a lot of people tell me to put the brakes on and, well, this is going to require more work and more effort. And, and so I quickly realized that, you know, this is where I belonged. And, uh, I still have a quite a bit of impact with, with different, uh, athletes and teams all around, but I get to do it out of my own house and, uh, they come to me and, and we truly come to play every day. Um, and you know, we, we happen to get paid for it, but, uh, that sort of, that's, that's what I'm running. I'm the quarterback of a, a ship that's, uh, got a lot of different experts on it. And, but, but we all, you know, speak the same language and are sort of working towards the same goal. You know? Well, no, that I want to share something with you. Uh, I'm, I'm halfway through a book called second strength. Uh, I think that's the name of it. I, I get those wrong sometimes, but basically in the early part of our career, when we're running and gunning and trying to be an expert, be creative and distinguish ourselves, I think they call that fluid intelligence. But there is a point where I guess I'm not going to produce original work anymore. I'm simply going to sort of crystallize 
maybe some of those screening and testing and assessment pearls that I've got and just learn to teach those better, right? There, there, there's a place in your, your, I guess, career where you're developing and growing and there's a place in your career that sometimes I think you don't feel like you're contributing when you're directing traffic. Without the hub of the wheel, none of the spokes work. And so even though you don't get to close cases, right? Just like the rodeo guy, eight seconds, put my hands in the air. I get my rush of adrenaline closing a case. But I also know you've arrived at that place where your 80-20 play says, by the time you put them on the right direction, you've already closed the case. And you know perfectly well that you've got enough systems of checks and balances where if they're the 20% outlier, there's a complicating factor or somebody drops the ball, you're also in a position to see that in a good enough time to do it. And, and I think sometimes that um, I was talking to Phil Plisky and Jenna on their podcast saying, you know, talking to young clinicians about imposter syndrome. I'm like, I wake up with that every day. Uh, it never goes away. The day it does, you're an asshole. <laughs> but you mitigate that and you reduce your own confirmation bias, not by you know, studying more. You create a system and feedback loops that we're all accountable to. And when you mention pro sports and, and your contribution there with the Canucks, I, I've felt that where I would much rather be a consultant to highly political, highly volatile situations than an employee. Because one of the things that I think Lee and Kyle, uh, Phil, Greg, you, we all recognize when we consult with a pro sports team is we try to create a standard operating procedure that will help them. And so if this is a pain problem, we've got to unpack it in healthcare. And if this is a non pain problem, we can unpack it in a movement space, more like wellness and risk prediction. If this is a performance problem, we unpack it over here and everybody stays in their lane until the franchise player has a boo-boo. And now the franchise player asks the strength coach to run his rehab because he has a better relationship with the strength coach. And that's not a bad thing if the strength coach knows how to play it and says, okay, I will participate, but Bernard's still calling the shots. And that doesn't usually happen. So when we're in a situation where the six-year-old gets to decide who their teacher is, you don't have a principal, you don't have an educational system, you've got an entertainment thing with textbooks, right? And so- Yeah, that's bang on. Yeah, no. So I know you can feel that both on a professional and personal level, but don't ever discount- creating a wheel and then you'll never not have to play the hub until you create another you you're going to have to distinguish yourself in a few spokes but in the i guess the twilight of your career being the hub of that wheel you may not get the slam dunks that you get when you close a case or have a clinical breakthrough or activate somebody's core that's been asleep forever or go upstream and find out oh my god you got food allergies. This is not a mobility and stability problem. This is an upstream inflammation problem. So be that quarterback as long as you can and realize that you're closing more cases than you ever did just by getting them on the right path, I think, you know? You know, I got to tell you a story. Uh, I uh, belong, so tennis is another one of my passions and I belong to a tennis club and that's where I go to, you know, do my, you know, gym training, 
right? So we have a beautiful sort of uh, gym set up here at the clinic, but this is where I work. I kind of, you know, try and get away from this space and, you know, the, the facility at the tennis clubs right on the ocean. So you got, you know, the, the visual stimulation, uh, as well. Um, anyways, I, uh, I was doing my, my warm up and doing some movements and obviously like people that aren't familiar with functional movement systems and, you know, the way we move, um, you know, they kind of come up and, you know, ask questions and stuff. So for years, um, our clinic, it was all about, oh, like Bernard, like I want to go to Bernard, right? Mm -hmm. I was the brand and, you know, I was working so hard to get away from that. I wanted people to come to fit to train at the clinic. Exactly. And so this guy walks up to me and he goes, hey, uh, those are some interesting stuff you're doing. He's like, there's these guys in town. I think they're called fit to train. You should go see them. They kind of <laughs> remind me of you. <laughs> so that was the moment where I'm like, you know, finally, you know, yes. like, and, and my teammates were speaking my language and they're doing, you know, whatever they're delivering was sort of making noise outside of those walls. And, uh, and that was, you know, the moment where I'm like, we're on the right track. We're on the right path. Like, you know, and especially when I was doing a lot of travel with you guys, uh, you know, often I would, you know, I'd walk into the clinic and like, Oh, you still work here. Oh, yeah. great. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I, I never forget that. And, and I happened to be wearing one of our like t-shirts with our company logo on it. And as soon as the guy started talking, I just put my hand on there. <laughs> Let him finish. You want to see how this, this ends? No, I, I think that's, that's awesome because I, I do think sometimes that because our our common bond in the systems we apply to the to the passion for movement we have, it's taken us international. It's taken us through language barriers and borders and stuff like that. And it's very hard sometimes to go back to your hometown and feel like, man, I just made a bigger impact in Japan than I made in my own zip code. Because you see the local high school doing stuff that we haven't done in 30 years just because they got a new coach and it worked for him once for six months. And so, I mean, I still remember when I first entered the NFL, if you were a middle linebacker, here's your workout, right? Because we looked at risk as only the threat of the environment you play. So if you're a defensive middle linebacker, these are the threats that can maybe make that position, you know, knock you out of the game. So we train you for your threats, not your vulnerabilities. And a, and a really good book I, I got through, written by Stanley McChrystal, was called Risk. And we're all we've been talking risk management ever since we did this thing because the one thing that I think you and I probably uh, align on is I don't want to use my talents to fix preventable things. I want to use my talents to fix unpreventable things. And therefore, if I want to fix preventable things, I must go upstream. I cannot be a musculoskeletal assessment guru. I must be a musculoskeletal screening guru because this means I can identify the problem before it causes harm. Because once it causes harm, I got to assign you a number. I got to call you a diagnosis, not your name. I got to call you an ACL, not Banat. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it gives me tunnel vision and conversations that I don't want to have yet because you're going to make it all about your quad and hamstring. And I want to make it about your hip, your core and your eating habits. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
It's, and it's sometimes it's challenging to fit into that box where, you know, insurance companies have different demands, physicians, you know, only speak a certain language and, and, uh, you know, it, it is big picture and it is whole, whole person, uh, management. Well, I wrote down some things this morning about the note that I was taught to write as a physical therapist, the, the SOAP note, the Subjective Objective yeah. Assessment yeah, yeah. and Plan. And I was thinking on it this morning that 80 to 90% of all my dictation, handwriting, and all my checking the boxes and filling out the form was so we could have a medically-based transaction. None of yeah. that language led me to transformation, to resets, to pivotal teaching moments, to the educational opportunity. When the, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, the first thing we got to do is bring this person's confidence-reality ratio into check because a mind-body connection is your thoughts and feelings aligned. And if you fill out a survey about your movement, and then I screen your movement, which one is closer to the objective truth? Your body will tell me things that your conscious mind's not aware of. So you can say, I got great balance. And then I can do a Y balance test. And your body will say, I don't got great balance. <laughs> well, the very first part of therapy is making sure your mouth and brain and your single leg stance are in agreement about your balance. And it sounds a little humorous, but... Cops do this too when somebody goes, I'm not drunk, and they say stand on one foot, and then they can't. And then the person will insist, but I'm not drunk, right? And, and so that's what a blind spot is. And, and we're not aware of our own blind spots professionally in our own practice, but personally, and the probably the last five years of my career has been taking some of the crap I say on stage and, and really rewashing it over my life and realizing how many of my musculoskeletal problems are preventable. Um, how much of my sleep has been broken forever? How much of my strength conditioning practices probably fit a 30-year-old's body more than a 56-year-old's body? And just literally learning how to, if these words are so important to say to others, you've got you to gotta recycle them through your life. Not once, about every six months, because that's, that's what the mind-body connection is. Are your thoughts and feelings aligned, and are your actions and behaviors really pointed in the direction you want? Because if you want better sleep, turn off the damn TV at 11 o'clock, you know, and don't drink coffee after three. <laughs> so. I mean, I, can, I can't even count anymore with my, with my fingers the number of times a client has come to my office, we're doing the intake, and we never even get to the physical evaluation because you know we unravel so much of these speed bumps and garbage along the way where yep. I'm like you have no hope to thrive in the environment that you've created around yourself you know yeah you but, know, but my, I, also, intake, I also think that that I don't want our listeners to think you and I are trying to become nutritionists sleep experts or psychologists I know what broken sleep looks like I know what an inflammatory diet looks like. I know what bad breathing tests like, and I know what bad movement looks like. And I also know that if, if we don't have at least one upstream behavior modification and one downstream focus, so I think movement sits in the middle. 
right, is it's a subconscious signature of your homeostasis. But we can look upstream to your life cycles, the, the, the eating, the breathing, the hydrating, the rest, recovery cycles, find one thing. And then we can look downstream at your performance, your activities of daily living, and some of the burdens that maybe you wish you didn't have. And movement's in the middle of that. So we got you know your performance and independence downstream, and we've got your self-care upstream. And I honestly think that you and I can change someone's balance before they recognize it's changed and without practicing balance, which means I think many of our movement indicators on physical exam don't necessarily need an exercise or corrective as they need a, number one, is there a unified awareness of this? And secondly, you can't will yourself into a better movement screen or SFMA. You can lie that you don't have pain, but if you don't have balance, I can't implant a thought in your frontal lobe right now that's going to change that. And if your grip strength is burdened on one side, that's inhibition. And I, I do think that, unfortunately, both in physical therapy, athletic training, and maybe even some forms of healthcare, we see weakness and assume they need strength added to their strength, life. Yeah, we yeah. see mobility problems and assume you need a stretch. A college freshman in exercise science could issue this stuff if that yeah. were the problem. So yeah. unburdening the system and letting it breathe and then seeing its deficiency, I think really allows us to take action. And this doesn't take much longer than the normal treatments we did. We're just, we've got a few spinning plates, but I never make somebody fix their breathing, their sleep, and their nutrition and hydration in a pass. I find the bottleneck and say, if we fix breathing, how many dominoes fall? If we reset sleep, how many dominoes fall? And I try to give people one lifestyle and one performance indicator and said, and we're going to watch movement. That's the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. yeah. No, hundred percent. It's, you know, to me, it's always like you're, you're trying to grow a tree or a plant and you're planting that seed and the soil and the sun and the water and all that stuff matters. And, and it's, you know, I literally use these words with clients. I'm like, and if you have a tornado coming through your yard every day, it's just, I'm sorry, it's just not going to work. I have a tornado you know? coming through my living room every day, and we call her Xena. <laughs> it's a cartwheel. A princess a, warrior. <laughs> yo, man. It's, How old is Xena? Xena turns 11 on the oh. 18th of this month. We're, I, I, I'm cleaning my backyard right now because Mrs. Cook decided we need a bounce house and a sleepover in the backyard. Yeah. And I, I had all my paddle boards out, and I was putting them away for the winter. And by the way, I just bought a sweet dirt bike. Uh, I'm, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, well, I, you live in a postcard and you drive sweet, fast cars. You're the only yes. guy when we travel, you don't just rent the car they give you. You rent the next car <laughs> you might want to buy. And and God, man. Not even going to tell you what I picked up last week. What do you got? What do you got? I got that. The new Audi RS6 Avant. <laughs> 600 torque, 600 torque. It's a family wagon. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you justify that. Your family needs to Twin go that fast. <laughs> family wagon. <laughs> All right. 
I think a lot less of myself, but Danielle allowed me to start restoring a 1987 Porsche 924S. It's got the Beautiful. 944, but I found it a uh, little barn find and it barely had a hundred thousand miles on it. So I'm, I'm basically get to be the guy in 16 candles now that, <laughs> so. well, I know when my next trip's going to be to your house <laughs> and you know what We're you're going to go drive if you don't want to fly. So you could probably That's be here it. just as quick, but do me a favor. Take me back to Bernard, the exercise science strength coach, personal trainer, and give me about a five-minute pearl for those people who've invested their time and talent in, in the fitness side or strength conditioning side of this conversation. And then give me a few minutes for PTs, and then give me a few minutes for physicians, osteopathic Take us through your history because I I honestly think that you've got some some pearls for people and uh, um, give a, give us that right now. Yeah, so you know science always made sense to me and human biology always made sense to me and and you know going through high school and university, you know I just tried to get the you know organic chemistry and calculus and all that stuff out of the way as fast as possible and. <laughs> I just I was just fascinated by you know anatomy, physiology, and uh, whether it was professors that just struck a chord in me, or my uh, fascination and obsession with watching somebody you know run in slow motion or throw or you know do things that most human beings weren't able to do. So that took me to exercise science and. You know, uh, I think most people have heard this story, but I came across functional movement screen and functional movement systems um, just out of high school before I was getting ready for my uh, first year of undergrad in exercise science. And so I think something got planted in me right from the start. And the first, uh, first time I, you know, heard you talk, you know, it just, yeah, it just resonated with me. And I'm like, yeah. Like this guy is saying something that I have a tough time communicating the way I feel about things, the way I try to do things or see things. Um, so that was sort of the backbone of my, you know, exercise science education. And I was always seeking more and more and more. And that's what I would say, you know, university education just gives you a taste and a sample of what's there. Uh, but, but a lot of times, you know, professors, again, not all, I'm generalizing, but sometimes they, they, they're they sort of going to the same place, doing the same thing, and, and they don't have the time to get out and explore what's happening. And and so I, uh, I was doing a lot of conferences and seminars outside of my university education as an undergrad, uh, taking out loans and jumping on flights and uh, you know, I, I got to admit a few times I uh, uh, just checked off the fact I'm a physical therapist, even though I was a second year undergrad and nobody checked my license. I just, you know, would show up to uh, they just Minnesota. Want your money. <laughs> That's right. You know, they just like, want your money. I quickly realized that you don't have to actually show your license at the door. And uh, so I, I got exposed to a fair bit uh, before I even finished my undergrad. And and, you know, by my second, third year, my profs were asking me to help teach some of the labs and because they saw my obsession and, you know, the way I was, you know, bringing up discussions and things like that. So um, one of the best things that I did, you know, all through my you know career was go and see as much as 
possible in, in the field. And, you know, I wasn't serving at a restaurant at night to make money. I was working in a gym, whether I was cleaning equipment or, you know, supervising. And so I always ended up working in the same field as I was learning in. I've used this quote many times, but Mark Twain said, never let your schooling interfere with your education. Exactly. You can do both at the same time. And, yeah. and I commend you for that. But there, I, I wanted to bring this up right now because there is something planted within a BS degree in exercise science that is unbelievably incorrect. In the first university that fixes it, I will give them a campus visit and a free day with Gray Cook change exercise science to movement science because the assumption is everybody needs exercise and not everybody needs exercise. I think everybody needs a good amount of physical activity and a scaled amount of stress because if 80% of your calories go back to maintaining your, your, your basal, basal metabolic rate, 80% of most of your nutri- nutrients just keep you alive. That means the other 20% get to explore your goals and your passions and be given to your family and your profession. So how much of your movement do you actually need just to maintain a version of you? And then how much movement's left over to pursue what you want to do at Whistler or on the tennis court? We don't think about things that way, but it's almost like saying to physicians that all you need is pharmaceutical science. You don't need health science. You need pharmaceutical science, assuming that everybody needs a drug or supplement, just like we assume everybody needs exercise. If you pass a movement screen, if you pass our physical capacity test, if you ace a Y balance test, and if you don't hurt... I'm going to say, show me what you're doing, whether it's exercise or not, let me do that. But I think the assumption is we've actually let the language of exercise define movement instead of the the language and acquisition of movement call upon exercise to make impactful changes where it should. And we all do that. I mean, you know, Moses gave them the Ten Commandments. They made a golden calf and decided to worship that instead. But exercise isn't God. Your own natural drive to move and thrive and explore the environment around you and make connections is what movement does. And sometimes exercise helps with that, and sometimes it doesn't. So it change doesn't. the damn degree, and I think we'll make a bigger difference. <laughs> You know, I think like when I was like looking for degrees, I mean, I ended up going to UBC again to stay close to family and <laughs> Whistler. Uh, but uh, th- I think like there was a program in Brisbane, Australia that was called Human Movement. God bless. Uh, it yeah. Be. And, and you know, our my degree was called Human Kinetics and then they changed it to Kinesiology, you know, Um but, you know, going back, it, you know, you, you start learning and, and a few people pump your tires and, and you think like you're standing on top of the world and you know it all. And then, and then you meet somebody that, you know, says something that you're like, oh boy. And, you know, throughout my career, I've, I mean, certainly realized the more I, more I learn, the less I know. Uh, Most just, people feel you, that way when they meet you. <laughs> Well, I feel the same. <laughs> well, see, there you go. There's like, the imposter syndrome is, is yeah, part but, of but what I we think, all, yeah. But I think like 
what I've learned is just to like keep that ego in check. And sometimes there's a difference between being super excited about what you're doing and what you're saying versus like, this is the way and this is the only way. And so I've, I've been, you know, guilty of that a lot throughout my career where, you know, I closed the doors and figured I've got all the tools I need. And, you know, I remember the days of like where, you know, core training and, you know, training those deep muscles and everything on the floor. And, you know, like we all went through it right? until the next thing, you know, I, as a physical therapist, I used to take, you know, a manual therapy course and then go do a needling course. And then, you know, and, and my poor clients and patients, they were just getting the intervention that I learned about the weekend before. And, and really that's, you know, how I ended up going to osteopathic uh, manual medicine. Um, but as a, as a strength and conditioning coach, you know, like if, if I can give someone a tip, it's, you know, like see as much as you can, be open to as much as you can and, you know, tools. And you've always said this, like I remember in your, in your videos with Brett Jones, uh, you know, the secrets series, it was always like, here's a high tech, here's a low tech and here's a no tech. <laughs> so <laughs> like at the end of the day, it's just, you know, were you able to shift that behavior? Uh, and, you know, going back to like, you know, sometimes lack of movement makes movement better. You I know, agree. sometimes just parking the car over and letting the engine cool down a little bit. I mean, there there are weeks where when I stop like doing my exercises, you know, it's like my joints take a breath of air, and you know, uh, so it's yeah. That's how I would say. Like as a strength and conditioning coach, it was I was very naive to like how much was out there and. And, you know, and part of it, too, was because I explored so much and I thought, like, here, here's me. I've traveled the world. I've learned as much as I could. And uh, and, and then, you know, then you learn the next thing and you're like, oh, boy, like, uh, yeah. And, and you, really, my journey ended up in the sort of medical world when I out of frustration um, from some of the, you know, physical therapists and other medical professionals that I was working with. Uh, and, and I kind of wanted to do it all. And that's, that's why I ended up in the therapy side. It was never the intention. Um, when, when I was a young physical therapist, fresh out of university of Miami, Paul Hughes, uh, lovingly and sometimes not lovingly boxed my ears every day for, for three years. It was like waking up and sergeants pissed off again today. He's just coaching me up hard, but I, I deserved it. I, I was, I was way cocky and way ready to do that. And he really made me a systematic thinker. As a strength coach, before we go into physical therapy, outside of FMS, what was a big influence on on what you did? Because FMS helps you see things clearly, but I appreciated Pavel and what I learned from kettlebells more because I realized, oh, he's not sacrificing movement quality to gain strength. Whereas I'd seen a lot of people who gained a lot of strength and they walk really poorly and they bend very poorly. And outside of the strength 
exercises that they do, they're not really a great example of, of human movement. So what are some of those other things other than FMS as a trainer, um, strength conditioning coach that really helped you action movement once you had maybe a better, better lens? Yeah, you know, uh, one one that comes to mind is uh, in my uh, third year as an undergrad, I took a powerlifting uh, certification course. Okay. Where this guy, he he was, you know, a, an ex-Olympic powerlifter, and he didn't have any, you know, personal training or science degrees or anything like that. It was just he was uh, – I think from like uh, Kazakhstan or something. Uh, this goes back a few decades here, but uh, but the way he like it, it, it almost like he understood the science of movements without actually being educated on it, and it was like by making mistakes, learning by doing, and and you know I kind of smile now where people you know jump into a training facility and. Lo and behold, within 15 minutes, they're, you know, doing cleans and jerks. And this guy spent six, seven hours of the certification course uh, just cleaning house before we were allowed to touch the bar. And, and the process that we had to go through and, you know, going through the motions and just understanding what's needed. And, and I think half the class wasn't even allowed to like do the lifts. And, you know, and what you're talking stick. about is, is Olympic lifting, like snatch and clean and jerk, not yeah, bench press, yeah. squat and deadlift, right? Yeah. No, no, no. No, I no, agree with the same thing. And I went to a uh, Power Monkey Fitness Camp a few weeks ago. And these guys have taken the CrossFit message back to a level of expertise in gymnastics and Olympic style lifting or true, what I would say is a demonstration of power and lifting. And uh, Dave Durani invited me over there, uh, Olympic-level gymnast, with his partner, who's an Olympic-level lifter. And these guys have taken that fundamental CrossFit message that I don't think was that tainted and kept it from running out of the guardrails. They brought it back because I honestly think that teaching good fundamental technique once mobility is present is all the stability you need. You just yeah. got to have that gradient. And I agree. When I went through my Olympic uh, or USA weightlifting certification, Mike Gatone did the same thing for me. We spent more time on the broom handle than the bar, but when we got yes. to the bar, we did not dishonor it. Yes, <laughs> so. no, 100%. Yeah. No, don't. yeah, so that was that was one that comes to mind. And, and you know, honestly, like as a personal trainer, I was never attracted to the, you know, working on the aesthetic side of things, the bodybuilding side. I was always, you know, I wanted to like improve athletic performance. So, you know, I, I was always hanging out around the track and learning from, you know, old school track coaches and, uh, you know, like the warmups, the, you know, like all the little side drills that they did. And, and I used to do that stuff with my personal training clients. Well, see, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because when when you know a few fundamental, really good lifts like snatch, clean and jerk, maybe some fundamental grinds like deadlift and carries, the next thing you're looking for is calisthenics, yeah. right? And that's what you get a lot in both martial arts and track and field. I got a lot of great ideas from Vern Gambetta, track coach or, or track background here. And when Brett and I did the Turkish Get Up project, 
we called it kalostenos because that's where calisthenics come from in the Latin or Greek, beautiful movement. And it doesn't necessarily mean without implements, but a lot of people think calisthenics is just body weight. Calisthenics was also, I think, weighted wands in Indian clubs at one time. But the fact that you identify both true Olympic style lifting as a fundamental, because it exploits full mobility and global stability simultaneously. And then these track and field warmups and calisthenics and even plyometrics, you blend those two things together. It's almost impossible to get a bad movement screen. It, it, yeah. it really is. Whereas if you start this isolation strategy, like we get both in healthcare and bodybuilding, and you, you said something, good function is usually transferable to better looking form, physical appearance, but better looking form can now be gained without being functional. 300 years ago, I don't think it was possible. If you look good, you probably move good too. But we've got spray on tans, we've got crash diets, we got liposuction, we got implants, and we got unilateral myopic training that can literally make you look good in appearance until you're asked to move. And so function has always been the biological drive to have good form. But you can hack that and get an aesthetic form without function. So I think function is upstream of form. But we experienced the same thing when when a lot of our movement screening stuff was translated into uh, both uh, Spanish and Portuguese. We were speaking to personal trainers that were very early in the evolution of personal training in Brazil. And they said, our clients don't care about function. It's all aesthetic. The ones who can afford personal training services in our country are only worried about the aesthetic. And I'm like, then tell them this will get that too. (laughs) It'll just last longer this way. As a healthcare professional, most of your patients likely walk through your door already experiencing pain. The SFMA is your initial assessment and provides a differential diagnosis that leads to more efficient treatment. And now it is easier than ever to get certified by signing up for one of our SFMA live virtual courses. We offer SFMA level one and two virtual courses online guided by a live instructor who will take you through the entire process. You'll be able to ask our team questions in real time and watch instructors work through live models throughout the day to be sure you leave with a clear understanding and the ability to start implementing the SFMA into your own practice. And for a limited time, We'd like to offer our podcast listeners a special rate for this SFMA virtual training experience. Follow the link in the show notes and use promo code VERT22 at checkout for $50 off your virtual SFMA level one or level two certification courses. That's V-I-R-T-2-2. And if you bundle them at checkout, you'll save an additional $220 automatically. We look forward to you joining us. Now back to the show. Take us to physical therapy and and what that added, and then give me something other than FMS that really maybe helped you distinguish yourself as a, as a PT once you saw movement different. Yeah, so, um, you know, as I mentioned, going into the physical therapy side was sort of like a, out of frustration, and I was working with uh, medical professionals that, you know, like I was in a at the Sports Institute in Malaysia, and these athletes that were coming back after injuries were nowhere ready to to do the things we wanted them to do in the strength on the strength and conditioning side. And and you know, I wanted to just have the license to be able to like cross that pain barrier and be on that side and be able to diagnose and do something about it. And and uh, 
you know, my, my goal is to just go get that license and then carry on and work as a, as a movement coach, uh, working on, you know, performance and stuff like that. And, and God, like, you know, quickly learned that there's multiple specializations in physical therapy and you got cardio rasp and geriatrics and burns and inpatient hospital based stuff. And, and, um, the the physical therapy school I went to at the time was heavily like hospital based, and uh, a lot of the professors that were running the departments, all the research was in cardiorespiratory health, and and so quickly I'm like, what have I done? What am I doing? And mm-hmm. um, but you know, got through it, and I actually wanted to quit with like maybe less than a semester left. And then I got this, uh, I got this student sort of placement or practicum um, in uh, in Kelowna, in the interior of BC, at the Sport and Orthopedic Clinic. Um, and my supervisor was this guy named Roy Gillespie. Okay. He's, you know, one of the. I don't know if he knows this, but he probably influenced my career as a physical therapist. That initial sort of start point more than anybody. Um, so I showed up. And now let me, let me backtrack. Most of my sport orthopedic placements, I would show up, the client would come in, we were seeing like four to six patients per hour. Uh, and you know, everybody had to get the hot packs and the tens and the ultrasound. And you know, you, you rub down the area that was sore and you know, and these are the exercises that you gave, like literally go to that binder Flip to the knee section, and A to A to you know Z or Z or whatever. Um, so that's what we did. So you're pretty much an operator. You didn't get to use your brain, and actually, uh, you're a movement pharmacist. You're just dispensing something within the category of kinesiology where they pointed to and it hurts, and the diagnosis corresponds with. So yeah. it's hard to have a knee diagnosis without getting quad exercises nobody's ever going to check L4, 5. <laughs> Nothing. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and unfortunately, I had an FMS background by this time. Okay. So I was asking a lot of questions. And I remember one particular placement, I had a negative feedback on my like evaluation form. And, and the, it went like this, student challenges supervisor. So I guess the lady didn't like the fact that I asked too many whys. Well, why? So let me know, ask you this. You've been a supervisor probably as much as you've been a student, and you've been a mentor yeah. probably as long as you've been a student. Have you ever been challenged by a student, or do you usually have, hopefully, unless they ch- if somebody challenged me with a little disrespect, I'll give them a little bit of smackdown, yeah. but most of the time, I have a kind and loving way of saying, listen, I'm calling your missus, and until you yeah. start calling your missus, you're not going to get better. Now, if if this is too much friction for you, you're asking to be too good right now. Because so I'm trying to get you good, but part of that is a sense of both humility and respect. But you're welcome to question everything I do. But if I question you back, you can't get butt hurt. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent. I've had I've had a few situations where the the attitude's gone in the way of the learning and. You know, we've, we've quickly resolved that. But, but anyway, so that was my experience with placements until I showed up to this last uh, sport orthopedic clinic with Roy. And Roy, um, 
the first thing he said to me is like, look, like this is your opportunity to learn, you know, like be a student and take all the time you want. And I kind of was like, whoa, is this, is this a trick here? Like, he's like, I'll, I'll cover all the patients that are like, you know, because the goal was that you're going to take over my caseload for the next five weeks. But if you're running behind or, and Roy happened to be contributing to some research with a professor in Indiana. I can't remember the guy's name right now, but he was helping dart fish. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Camera-based so, yeah. analysis, uh, yes. movement captures, yeah. Yes. So Roy was doing a PhD, I think, somewhere in the States. Again, it's been a while. I can't remember where it was. So he had, like, the video equipment, and, you know, we got to, like, video people walking and moving, and I'm like, this is unbelievable. Uh, and and he was, you know, like, man, like, one of my best teachers because not only, like, he he really facilitated learning the way learning should be facilitated. He brought out, you know, the goods from me. Um, and he made me feel like a partner versus I'm here and you're here. Um, you know, I'm sitting at the top and you listen to what I do and you do it the way I say. And he really kind of brought the love for physical therapy back in me. And, and at that moment, I'm like, I know exactly what I'm going to do when I when I get my license. And when I got my license, I decided that I'm going to operate the way I did as a strength and conditioning coach, meaning I got to have uninterrupted one-on-one for an hour at the least with my clients. And that was a big no-no in the physical therapy world, at least where I was from. How can you You be efficient if you do that? Well, you're going to close a boatload more cases quicker and free up space for new patients. So it, watch it for six months. It's actually more efficient. But if you watch it for a day, it looks inefficient. Yeah, no, 100%. And, yeah. and you know, and the tides shifted a bit. Mm-hmm. But at that time, I'm like, I used to say I'm not smart enough to be able to like meet someone, diagnose them, treat them and send them home with something that they can do on their own in 15 minutes. Right. Uh, yeah, so that's, so I, I kind of set up a blend of what I was doing before to what I was now uh, you know, allowed with the license that I got to do as a physical therapist. And, you know, I became this guy where like, Oh, when you go see him, you don't have to go as many times. And <laughs> <laughs> How do we make money if you're not seeing them as many times? Right. <laughs> I didn't say I'm not working. I'm still seeing patients. I just don't have to see one for 30 days to get their knee to bend, you know? Yeah. And as soon as people would come in and like, well, are you not going to do the ultrasound? Or are you not going to do the tent? And I, I literally said, well, the last guy did that and you're here now. So why don't we try something different? <laughs> uh, so that that's sort of, you know, going from strength and conditioning world to the, the physical therapy world is out of necessity and out of frustration for me. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, I'm like, instead of bitching and complaining so much, why don't I go and actually like go through the ropes and see what it looks like in this room over Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And I, and I never looked back and, you know, I kind of, for a while I sat in the middle and had one leg in the training world and one leg in the medical world. And people liked me because I could speak both languages. Well, you're not stuck in a silo. You, you manage the ground in between two silos. And I wrote the whole business of movement for, all of the work to be had between the healthcare silo and the fitness silo. 
because all that real estate between those two silos is called wellness and health doesn't really generate wellness and fitness can't really work without it. And so health, we either got to make those silos bigger so they meet in the middle or we've got to have a separate profession the hub of the wheel that kicks you back to healthcare until they get this crap right or helps you on ramp fitness so it doesn't hurt you while it's trying to help you. Um, yeah. And you know, and as a, as a physical therapist, I was leaning on probably 80 to 90% of my strength and conditioning backgrounds to sort of, you know, get the car on the road and see and test drive it. Right. And so my sort of advice for physical therapists or any kind of person in the medical side is if you don't get the opportunity to spend time with people, go and learn from the trainers and the strength coaches because I don't know a trainer that spends 10 to 15 minutes with their clients. You know, like they get to actually participate in the session and watch people move and make corrections and see what worked, what didn't. Um, so I would say like go and learn from the people that are actually in the trenches. Yeah. Here in the, here in the States, I think people actually shell out more money for personal training and specialized strength and conditioning services. And obviously they don't complain or they'd quit paying, but these same people for the exact same amount will really complain when their physical therapy deductible is somewhere close to that. And that's them valuing the service. That's that's not them telling you, you know, that it's bad therapy. They're like, I have a hard time writing this check for you to give me a rubber band and tell me to go home where this person actually, you know, you know what I'm saying? So we've got to, we've got to do that because everybody in healthcare here in the States, you're going to get an angry patient because their deductible is so high. Well, number one, you pick that policy, (laughs) but number two, I'd like to make even that burden worth it by how efficient and effective I'm going to be with your time and effort. And, and if you're complaining, it's just like when an com- employee is complaining about their salary, they're actually complaining about their job satisfaction and a raise is only going to temporarily um, placate them. What they really would like is to f- feel valued more and, and be part of a, uh, a team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you sure. do need raises when you need raises, but a lot of that conversation has nothing to do with a percentage. It's got to yeah, do with no, value. Sure. You know, and it's interesting, like going back to, you know, school, like I, I really appreciated and valued the, the thoroughness and the time they took to teach us evaluation skills. But it's interesting, as I saw, like even myself, I mean, now I was fortunate enough, I had you beating into my head the fact that evaluate, 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 evaluate. You know, if you can't, you're not measuring, you're not, you know, doing anything with it. Right. Um, but I see a lot of people go through school and it's like, yeah, like the evaluation piece is the one that it's almost like, you know, how stretching and mobility work gets tossed when it's like, oh, I, I don't have time for all this. So I got to do cardio and I got to do my uh, bench press. It was the same thing. Evaluation as part of therapy was the first thing that's getting tossed out. And person was walking in with anterior knee pain and it's like, well, why do I need to like check it? Because I'll just treat it as patellofemoral pain syndrome, and these are the protocols, and these are the modalities, and these are the exercises. Right. Um, So, you know, like, and I think 
you know, before I got into the habit of thin slicing and really like going right to the intervention, I ended up in the osteopathy world. And that's really what the big difference is. You know, so, the so, SFMA and osteopathy world really align in parallel. Like, no, I'd had a, I'd had contact with osteopathy through Paul Hughes. I didn't even know what the word meant. And then I started seeing bone MD. Bone doctor, right? Huh? <laughs> bone doctor. Bone, bone <laughs> doctor, yes. That, that's going to do a lot of weird stuff at the whole other end of your body where the problem is, but it's still going to get better. Yeah. So yeah. down here in the States, DOs and MDs literally have the same training. And then DOs, depending on where they are trained here, get a little bit of that historical perspective. So I think the assumption sometimes, whether it plays out or not, is a DO is at least positioned to take more of a holistic approach, even in not in their specialty. Meaning you would think if you're seeing a DO, they're just going to basically take a different sampling of, of you. And the second thing that, that frustrated me in my career is I get out there just like you. I'm hungry. I'm probably taking way more classes than I'm ever going to teach. At least I thought so at the time. And 99% of continuing education in physical therapy, strength conditioning, and even healthcare is guided at treatment, not assessment. Yeah. But when a soldier who's a distinguished marksman decides to go to sniper school, he already knows how to pull the trigger and load the gun. What he's getting ready to learn is how to aim better. And that's the difference. You already got gun skills when you go to sniper school. What you don't have is that unbelievable accuracy and aiming and consistency. So, you know, but, but when you look at where people want to invest their dollars, oh, I got to learn dry needling, right? Before you got dry needling, how did you deal with soft tissue? Well, I was doing a lot of manual therapy. And, and so dry needling doesn't need a different assessment than cupping or scraping or manipulation or other forms of soft tissue. They all need a unified body signaling. And you see which one of these modalities seems to cause the greatest amount of good with the least amount of un, uh, you know, side effect. Is, yeah. is really, but uh, I think when I started looking into continuing ed, everybody who had a modality had a different way of val- evaluating that pointed you more to their modality than others. Now, I've got patients that are scared to death of dry needles. I got another way to get your popliteus moving. <laughs> well, my wife, my wife doesn't, like she, she's, she won't even be in the same room as a needle. And uh, I remember early on, you know, like I did, I got my acupuncture training and then, you know, the uh, intramuscular stim or IMS here in Canada, dry needling. And she would always say, um, you know, like, no, like you're not doing needles. Like it, imagine if you didn't have needles, what would you do? You know, I think the only time she let me use needles was when we first started dating, like second date. And I mean, I feel so bad because literally came back from a day of acupuncture training and I'm like, Oh, let me try this on you. So she was just laying there. I did the same thing, man. I did the same thing. So it's bad. Yeah. So yeah. So she, she calls me on it all the time. Right. Let me tell our listeners right now, boyfriends can get away with a lot more than husbands can. All right. hundred percent. Yeah. 
It just, it just is. That's just the way yeah. it is. You, you can't go back. Uh, there was, you, you only get to have boyfriend status once with your wife, and it's not after you're married. It's before. Uh, I've actually had clients come with their husband or wife in my office, and I say something. And the wife would turn to the husband or the husband would turn to the wife and say like, oh, see, I told you the same thing. And I quickly say, look it, you're the husband. Like, it, that's not going to work. That's right. <laughs> you know, that never works. Well, the yeah. reason I think clinically, the reason you can't help your family members or your spouses, uh, you know, parents included, is you have zero clinical effectiveness with anyone who's seen you naked. It's just it's a rule that you should apply if. A lot of people have seen you naked, then change your zip code, be a clinician yeah. somewhere else, you know. So I don't know how a healer in a nudist colony has any success at all. But take yeah. us into the unique osteopathic path that you went down because it's not the one probably people in the U.S. are familiar with. And, and give us a little insight into the, the, uh, the way that you found alignment between the SFMA movement behaviors and, yeah. and the osteopathic path. Yeah. So I was, uh, again, you know, signed up to take another one of these courses. I got the flyer in the mail and it was, uh, the Baral Institute visceral manipulation course. And, uh, I went and, you know, I was in Seattle, Washington and we're sitting there and, uh, you know, quickly realized, oh, this is going to be another course where, uh, you know, they're going to tell me like I can fix headaches and I can do this and everything under the sun can be corrected with this technique that we're about to spend the next three days. And, and then I kind of looked to my right, looked to my left. And I think there was, uh, you know, a body worker on one side and an accountant on the other side. Oh, wow. So, so you didn't have to have any sort of like, license to be here and uh so that kind of took me back a little bit but then as i you know then i'm like okay you know what just just you paid for the course you paid for the hotel just you know listen and and as they went through it i kind of i kind of realized wow like this is fascinating stuff but i just have a feeling it must be part of a bigger system and at lunch i was talking to a, a, a classmate and she's like oh like yeah like visceral manipulation is part of osteopathy and same thing, I'm like, osteo what? Like, this is, you know, I've never heard of this thing. Um, uh, so, what? you know, go on our, you know, friend Google and start typing away. And, and she's like, yeah, like, this is, this is osteopathy. And, you know, I think there's, uh, you know, some really good programs in Canada. And, you know, that's all I needed to hear. And uh, ended up on the Canadian College of Osteopathy. And so in, in Canada, and I think in most of Europe, osteopathy, um, we're osteopathic manual practitioners. So in the States, you go through MD and then you pick osteopathic medicine versus allopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not doing surgery. We're not prescribing medication. Um, but Do you order x-rays and MRIs? You know what? In, in BC, mm -hmm. only a physician can do that, which is quite inefficient because – 99.9% .9 of physicians call me and go, what do you need? <laughs> so what do you need and why you need it? Just tell me what you want and we'll get it done. So that's like, so their signature will cost healthcare dollars. Well, you know, the funny thing is we've had a lot of touches in the U S military 
And on a military base, uh, somebody's probably going to correct me if I'm wrong, but if a physical therapist needs an x-ray to do their job a little bit better and to close this case, hopefully without surgery or a lot of extensive rehab, they get it. They get an MR, they get whatever they need because I just need a perspective that's going to help me decide how much of this is a structural problem and how much of this is a functional problem. And so it is a unnecessary barrier I think, but you know, it is, it is what it is, but everywhere that I think government dollars are, are scrutinized and the military is one of those. It's like, why are we going through three steps to, yeah, yeah. So I get well, it. you know, and when the, when the client's in my room, they're paying out of pocket, but when the client goes to their doctor now to get that x-ray, whether it's a phone call, whether it's an email, that doctor is going to build a medical system. And it's not like I'm going to get the image and read it. The radiologist is going to write the report that I'm going to read and, you know, obviously, like, look at the image as well. So I'm not making any calls. I'm just saying, hey, I need more information here. So, so yeah. Um, no, we, I had my patients come back to me and said, yeah, it said degenerative changes. I'm like, it <laughs> never doesn't say that. I was making sure you didn't have a tumor or a spondylolisthesis yeah. or, a, you know, a, a stenosis. But it all... Unless you x-ray a six-month-old, it says degenerative changes. That's a normal finding for anybody who's been upright for 20 years. It just... (laughs) Yeah. And in parts of Canada, I think in uh, Eastern Canada, like in Toronto and Ontario, those areas, I think they've, the physical therapists are able to order these images. And and I'm hopeful that, you know, even if you like, say the physical therapist that or osteopathic practitioners that want to do this stuff, they have to get further education and then leave it up to the practitioner go take some courses and then, uh, and then be able to make that call. But but let me make one, let me make one point that I, that I I hate to interrupt, but I honestly think that a lot of people in healthcare order lab results, x-rays and MRIs, CT scans, because they don't know what's wrong. Whereas Prior to having all these testing modalities at our resource, you had to call the shot and you used the secondary diagnostic other than your own manual skills, history taking skills, and patient interaction skills. So if I order an MRI, I think I'm going to see something that lines very much up with this physical exam, right? Or I'm trying to rule out something that would create a contraindication to what I'm getting ready to do. So I'm already calling the shot, right? Instead of just saying, oh, no, let's get an MRI. That's not a good reason to get an MRI. A good reason to get an MRI is you build a case for ruling out something this could be or putting you closer to a prognosis that you can action. And I don't think we use those things that way. So it's a slippery slope. I know a lot of physical therapists would love to be able to order x-rays, but with that comes great responsibility. Don't abuse that. Don't use that. If, if physical therapists in the States got a well musculoskeletal visit once a year for everybody who had insurance and they got reimbursed a, an evaluation fee for that, I think a lot of PTs would do a musculoskeletal evaluation, not a lifestyle and movement screen. And if you're trained in 
you know, McKinsey approach, you're going to do a McKinsey exam and you're going to find exactly what you're looking for. And if you're very big into PNF, you're going to find what you're looking for. And that's why I think if we were ever given the unbelievable honor of interacting with an asymptomatic person simply to call risk factors, we would all get on our agenda wagon and our assessment preference, not on an arbitrary screen that is universally recognized as a movement signature uh, of risk or not risk. And, and I think we all need to get there. So if we're ever given that well visit, I hope we don't abuse it and lose it within three years by turning every well visit into a reason to do more rehab, because that's not what it is. It's, it's when a dentist cleans your teeth, they're not looking for a root canal. They might see one <laughs> and have to do something about it, but they're here to give you six months of clear until they got to look in your mouth again. So, yeah, you know, and I've about, you know, 15 to 20% of my caseload is actually clients that are checking in. God you bless know, you, man. That's the way, yeah. that's the way we get upstream. And you know, it's like, Oh, you're transitioning from your road bike to the ski season or ski season's done, you're going on the road again to run. No, for sure. I have, I have clients and, and I use that same dental model perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you got an annual physical, you go to your dentist every, you know, some people go three times a year. Um, yeah, I've got 15, 20% of my case so that they're here at the latest, uh, once every three, three, three and a half months. Um, now, um, I'm going to take you back to osteopathy. Um, I truly think that the two things that I've been most fascinated by, by the osteopathy approach, is they never look at movement in a vacuum. And, and our SFMA is a really good roadmap for mobility and stability global problems on the top tier and impairments recognizing the breakout. But just because we find those, I want all of our listeners to hear, we don't immediately go for a corrective if there's a visceral signature, meaning gut problems or previous surgeries to the gut or organ regions, or breathing problems. Because the one thing I think osteopathy, just like martial arts and yoga has had since the beginning, is they never separate the breath, the, the, the gut, and movement problems from each other. Because if you've got gut issues or breathing issues, you will manipulate your musculoskeletal system to get as big an airway as possible. Yeah. So if yeah. an anterior head posture person has a bigger airway in bad posture than they do in the posture that you'd rather see, guess who's going to win? The airway. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, don't, we don't think that way. So that's the, that's the one thing I want our listeners to do. And I think that very easily now, organ and gut health and breathing problems can drive musculoskeletal behavior. So you don't have to become an osteopath to have a breathing screen and to do a quadrant evaluation of the gut. And, and where, where could our listeners find a little bit of just, I mean, we got a breathing screen at FMS, but if I were going to do a question the quadrants of the gut with palpation and maybe consider an upstream driver, gallbladder, something like that, uh, the history is going to take- In the SFMA, as soon as you get into that lumbar lock rotation test- Yep. 
where you, your hips are on slack, the lumbar spine is locked. You know, a lot of that, you know, I remember like when we're teaching the courses and stuff, like a dysfunctional movement in the lumbar lock is not necessarily a T-spine issue. You know, first of all, you got to consider the ring, the spine, the rib, the sternum, like all of it, but that's the cage. But also don't forget what's on the inside of that cage. Right. And a lot of like anterior torso tissue extensibility problems are visceral problems. And isn't that another way of saying high threshold strategy? We see it from inappropriate training and we see it from visceral problems. So you can create this oblique high tone TA pelvic floor low tone scenario to protect yourself from hostile external environments or hostile internal environments. And it feels the same on palpation and looks the same on movement. But if they're giving you a few key indicators of abdominal issues, uh, females having pelvic floor problems, uh, menstruation problems, bladder and bowel problems, if they're giving you all these things, at some point you you got to consider that. And it's much harder... I think here in the States to get a good visceral perspective of function, we take a visceral perspective of structure, right? And if we don't see bad structure, we assume good function, but you can see good structure in the gut and have chronic diarrhea, constipation, incontinence, uh, painful intercourse, many things that look great on x-ray and ultrasound, but don't work that way. Just like a good knee x-ray doesn't mean you can deep squat. It just means you should be able to. Um, And if you can't... And it's like, you know, people don't ask the questions either, right? Like, you know, the the FMS or SFMA, like that's like, you know, third on the list. Like when you take your history, rule out contraindications, like people think I have three eyes when I ask like, do you have any bladder bowel function problems? Do you, are you bloated? Like, you know, we literally go through, do you have headaches and migraines? You, you know, come all the way down the systems. And, you know, a lot of athletic injuries lead to some sort of visceral dysfunction from a mobility standpoint. Yes. Hockey players, every time they are getting cross-checked, they're getting uh, a shot to their kidneys. And the kidney sits on your iliopsoas. The iliopsoas is the rail, is the track for the train, the kidney being the train. So, and, and, you know, going back to anatomy, the renal arteries are connecting these two things. And every step you take, they're supposed to go up and down and in and out. So people that are chronically coming with psoas strains or hip flexor problems or even back pain, you know, a lot of times these are viscerosomatic Right, uh, driven problems versus somatovisceral because the opposite can also be true. You know, having these visceral problems because of a musculoskeletal uh, drive. So what I'm going to try to do is make it ridiculously simple for my brain, but, but help. If you're having problems with your natural cycles, right? And we've got cerebral spinal fluid on a cycle. We've got bowel and bladder on a cycle. We've got menstruation, feeding, eating, sleeping, breathing. These are all cycles. If you're having problems with your cycles, there could be an internal driver. 
if your aura ring, your Garmin watch, and your lifestyle is going great, you don't have circles under your eyes, you're not hypertensive, everything's going great, then I do look downstream at maybe the way you're treating yourself in your, your exertion. Because we got a lot of athletes that their cycles are great, but they're doing all the wrong exercise and all the wrong training loads. And so they build armor for the outside insult as opposed to the inside distress. But if people are throwing out that their cycles don't sound normal, and, and it's, it's easy information to get respiratory rates, heart rates, uh, elimination rates. And if people aren't sort of lining up there, you're not really diagnosing the, a, a problem as well as you are doing a full evaluation of the lumbar. Because I know a lot of people with back pain and the therapist never touches the front of the yeah. back. They only touch the back. And yeah. I mean, the number of female clients that have had C-section scars that, you know, complain of back pain for years. Yes. The number of spinal manipulations they've received, the number of injections, the latest thing is like, you know, prolotherapy and they, they're, they're told they have instability in their spine and they're getting upwards of, you know, two to 300 needles per session mm-hmm. and they come in we go through our movement evaluation, isolate the problem to the front side, and start working on that scar. You know, so now that their pelvis can actually sit <laughs> in a in a position that it belongs to, um, yeah, you know, I there is, you know, the the spine, especially lumbar and cervical, they're adaptive zones. Right. You know, they take the beating. You got the skull, you got the rib cage, you got the pelvis, and you got these two rods in between that take an absolute beating. <laughs> and their job is to level everything out, you know, yeah. four or five discs, C five, six discs. Like, and we, a lot of times, yeah, it is the, the front. We wind back up. And even in this podcast, I catch myself and Lee doing it. We wind back up with this simple rolling around on the floor. It is something that always creates an aha moment in every SFMA course. And sometimes even an FMS course. Sometimes when we're doing the Y-balance, rolling helps that too. And another good way to sort of appraise the situation, if you unburden the system all the way down to rolling, and you can sort of, I'm not going to say coach up rolling, because we don't verbally get people to roll. We do things kinetically and visually to get people to roll. And when we add an appropriate breath sink or do something to dump tension, and rolling returns, more often than not, I find a lot of external insults on the core, meaning when you're on your feet, you're abusing yourself, whether you know it or not. And it doesn't mean you're overtraining. It means that you can't handle being on your feet eight hours without going into dysfunction. But when I don't see rolling and a few of our little resets restore that rolling behavior, I do start thinking inside and I do do start asking questions. And, and it's an uncomfortable question fit for anybody. But when I get to the point of C-section or pregnancy, the question I ask is, have you had a C-section, abdominal surgery, or what you would consider a complicated pregnancy? That usually opens up the conversation that'll allow me to maybe take a little uh, healthcare license to say, you know, when was your last exam for X type thing? Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you know, like the number of 
you know, going back to again the, the a female pregnancy example, the number of females that do a ton of core training after pregnancy that are continuing to have the, the incontinence issues, the, you know, the, well, I can't run because I pee myself. I can't do this. Um, and, and simply, you know, and, and sometimes like the C-sections aren't planned. It's an emergency situation where, you know, someone's life's threatened and the surgeon's not really kind of like take, it's not a plastic surgeon that shows up to make sure that scar is as beautiful as it can be. Like they literally like put the thing back together. And, you know, and it goes beyond that. Like in osteopathy, scar tissues are, are at the top of the hierarchy. I'll give you another example. I had a. What? Tell me, tell me why, though. That's a that's a very profound statement. And I, I want to yeah. stay right here. Why is scar tissue such a big deal for an osteopath? Let me backtrack. So in osteopathy, we look at different systems and layers of the body. One of the systems is the fascial network. Okay. Right. And all the fascia of the body are continuous. Exactly. When you have a scar tissue, it affects every fascial layer in your body. Because it welds multiple layers together that should be sliding on each other. You've got, what, eight layers of body socks, and they shouldn't be stitched together at any one point. They should... They should network and slide. And I think the, the, the Steckos have got sort of a fascial approach where they're not just mapping the fascia. They're looking at these points where multiple layers intersect. And if they are dehydrated or welded together in some way, you're making a contraction that's having an unnecessary influence somewhere else. Thus, you are your trigger and you can't get away from it. Yeah, and just you know, lay a towel on on a flat surface and just pinch one part of the towel. Every part of that towel is going to move. Yeah. And the bigger your, you know, you grab a t-shirt and you start twisting your shirt, every part of that shirt is going to come onto itself. Is this an appropriate anatomical statement that that generally speaking, twenty percent of every muscle? doesn't necessarily reinsert into the tendon proper. It feeds itself back into that fascial network. I think, I think it's, 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 you can probably yeah. dispute it in some cases, but I would think the majority of muscles both influence a tendon insertion and a uh, network influence. And if you look at the allocation of the distribution of fibers, it's about 80-20. So a muscle does have 80% influence on its intended origin insertion, 20% influence into the orchestra of other tissue tightness, I think. Um, I took a the dissection course from Gil Headley. Okay. Uh, so it was a seven-day course, uh, and pretty much you had a cadaver. And you got seven days to dissect this cadaver. And there was, you know, four to six people per body. Uh, and we, we dissected in layers, not in, like, parts. So we, the, the first day, we took the first day to take the skin off. And then the superficial fascia. And then we dove down. At some point, we dissected a line, like, literally soft tissue muscles to tendons. To, it was a continuous line. From the back of the right ear, don't ask me why, but to the right testicle, right? Okay. And we laid this on the table, 
and you could not tell me where this came from. It was just a continuous But it was a continuous, of, uninterrupted fiber yes. that was confirmed by anatomists to be a continuous, unified yes. piece of tissue. Yes. So well, you can maybe that's out, if somebody were to the Eiffel Tower out of the body, if you want. I, I guess that's another way of saying if somebody grabs you by the balls, they've got your ear. <laughs> they got your attention. Hundred percent true story, and I've dissected it. <laughs> well, I know we we could go on forever, but we can't go on forever. What what you have given us in your evolution um, is exactly the evolution that I think we should all go through because we can't all be everything that you've already been, but we can learn how to refer better, network better, and appreciate better. I'm not intimidated when a non-healthcare person wants to look into the SFMA because I think there was a time we used to assume that people would try to create a medical diagnosis without appropriate other differential skills. Now I just want strength coaches and personal trainers to know what a good orthopedic assessment looks like and how much they can help us recover this person. Likewise, I want physical therapists not to be intimidated by kettlebells because I think Turkish get-ups and neck patients are a great combination, but it doesn't have to be a kettlebell. It can be a tennis shoe or a sandbag balanced on top of your fist, but it's still an unbelievably good holistic movement pattern. So, as I said, we can't all be everything you've been because, dude, you're unique. But I honestly think you're not even in a position to refer to yourself now. You can't be the personal trainer anymore, but you have some personal trainers that are exemplifying some of those exact same drives that you did. Um, and, you know, like going back to your, you know, for, for, for a while we thought, you know, well, having like trainers or strength coaches at SFMA courses was like, oh no, like they're going to go and do this stuff. But I quickly realized there's a lot, we were sort of uh, going by the lowest common denominator, but I, I quickly realized there's a lot of great coaches out there that know their limits. And the more they understand on the medical side, the better they can refer. Those great coaches know what their limit is. And they would never cross the boundary. The idiots out there are going to be idiots. But, you know, I now take the perspective that they're few and far in between. Whereas we have more great strength coaches on the, you know, training side that when they have a better understanding, I mean, I've got personal trainers doing top tier SFMA and sending those results to me with their clients and saying, hey, this is all I could do. I just now realize that this is not in my environment, it's a health problem. Um, So I think it's been great. No, and I honestly think sometimes we don't shine enough attention on the top tier of the SFMA. And when I was sitting in my kitchen as a single parent, Mm -hmm. having just written Athletic Body and Balance, and Kyle Keese and I are working through the SFMA, and I basically looked at Syriax's model of selective manual muscle tension assessment. Strong and painless, that is normal. Strong and painful, that's probably a soft tissue lesion somewhere. 
mm-hmm. weak and painful. That could probably be a major lesion, maybe involving multiple structures, including the joint. And weak and painless, I'm starting to think neurological. And I'm like, that's brilliant if all you've got is your hands in 15 minutes to know whether you've got a musculoskeletal or maybe neurological problem, you know, or, or that severity. And I'm like, what if we brought that to movement? but use the word functional and painful or functional and non-painful and forcing myself before I asked others to do it to map all the dysfunctions that weren't symptomatic helped me realize that, you know, we've had the term regional interdependence for years. Everybody acknowledges it in an academic sense, but no one actions it in the 15 minutes you've got to unpack musculoskeletal after your history and before some of your intervention. And so I'm like, the SFMA rubs your freaking face in DNs that a DN in rehab is regional interdependence and a DN at discharge is a risk factor. (laughs) It just depends on what space they're entering. I look at them. Yeah, and and so that that really brings me to to the way I want to I want to wrap this with you because we were handed the term musculoskeletal health. I wouldn't have picked that term because a lot of people sit under that umbrella thinking they're not part of the problem. I am part of the problem, but as a young physical therapist, I got into PT school before I finished my athletic training certificate. Therefore, under Virginia law, when I came back to my hometown to practice, I couldn't go to a high school and do anything like a physical therapist without a physician's referral. I had to wait till harm has occurred before I could intervene. But as a strength coach, as Lee Burton is my wingman, I could stick my nose in that locker room, in that weight room preseason. And if I called what I was doing screens, not an assessment, you can't stop me. And I would develop friendship, camaraderie, communication, and accountability with the head football coach. And Mm -hmm. referrals weren't a problem when they needed me. But I said, I don't want you to need me as bad as you're getting ready to need me. I want Keith Fields to come over here and show you guys what good deadlifting looks like because he's better at this than I am. And uh, we're glad to help. We're going to be on the sideline yeah. if you need us, but I don't want you to need us for non-contact injuries. You're going to have plenty of contact injuries, and hopefully we can turn those for you really quick. But the word musculoskeletal health is only getting broader, and here's why. U.S. healthcare is now getting metabolic problems eclipsed by musculoskeletal problems. But really what's behind that is we're putting total knees in 40-year-olds. We're not telling them to lose weight. We're not telling them to exercise. We're not telling them to go through a course of rehab and see if you can avoid the surgery, prolong the surgery, or go into surgery much healthier, thus halving your rehab on the backside. We're simply throwing the knees in. But at the same time, we acknowledge that total knees have about a 10-year shelf life. And if you're 40 years old, planning on living much past 50, you're getting another surgery. As you get older, in every surgery you have after 40 is a complicating factor to another health system, like a staph infection, you know, or something like that. So 
as long as we could put total joints on Medicare, it didn't hurt Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or any other health carrier. But now that we're treating 40-year-olds like 70-year-olds, that's not a sustainable solution, and they need to know their options. But if you can't see a physical therapist or a chiropractor until you have a musculoskeletal problem, then musculoskeletal health care doesn't change musculoskeletal health. It only accelerates rehab in the best situation. So what we're seeing now is large companies and plants that may have a segment of physical labor hiring on campus or you know in building physical therapy. But the people who could easily benefit from a well-risk appraisal aren't going to go until they throw out their back on the back nine of golf, right? Well, it's too late. Yeah. So I need everybody in, in musculoskeletal healthcare to realize you can't change this from where you sit. You're going to have to figure out legal ways to insert yourself upstream in the conversation. And the best place to do that is athletics and fitness because these people are already motivated to do a little bit more. And realizing that a movement screen can change your workout or change the way you train for your sport is a good influence. But if you think about it, FMS made it into pro athletics in the elite military quicker than any other population. Why? Because it makes a bigger difference in athletics and war training are both accelerated environments where musculoskeletal injury is inevitable, but it doesn't have to alter the trajectory of your physical life, especially if we get upstream soon enough. And what are some things that you're doing in your position? I called you the hub of the wheel at the beginning of this thing, and I'm going to bring it back around to that. What are you doing within your clinic space to get to people or even people who are just now learning that they have these these options? Are, are you guys infiltrating fitness clubs, uh, youth sports, school systems? How do you let them know that that you're here to prevent more than just cure? Yeah, so, you know, the, a, a big, big part of what we do as part of our intervention is, you know, education like educating the clients, you know, I'm a, I, I, I always say surgeons fix things. I'm not fixing anything here. I'm facilitating this process. And, you know, I make every single one of my practitioners spend at least an hour. Um, at the first visit, heck my, my initial intake is 90 minutes because I just talk so much. Right. Me too. Um, <laughs> but we, we planted right from the start, you know, we've had so many companies come to us and be like, Oh, we want to, you know, bump up your Instagram. We want to do this to your, you know, uh, web, uh, web search optimization, this and advertise that. I'm like, honestly, like we function based on word of mouth. You know, you come and see me and I do something and then you go tell your uncle and your brother and your wife and the neighbor and the, you know, and, and we all go through this routine of like, Hey, like, by the way, like this could have been prevented. This is, you know, and we go through the talk of like, well, you know, you go to your dentist two to three times a year and, and then we start to look in the future. Well, the ski season, like this is coming. 
Like, what do you, what are your goals? What do you want to be doing? And, and also, you know, we all know that previous injury is the number one risk factor for potentially what's going to happen in the future. And, and that's, that's like telling someone who's had a heart attack, like the next one's coming unless you change your behavior and people want to sit there and go, what can I do? And, and, you know, if you listen to clients, they're always saying, what can I do? So this doesn't happen again. You know, and it goes beyond just, well, just do your exercise. I mean, I, I literally, when I'm prescribing something to people, like whether it's a lifestyle change, whether it's a move, corrective movement that they're doing, it's not like, oh yeah, by the way, do your exercises. Like I make it life and death, <laughs> you know, like take these, like you would, you wouldn't skip a dose of your antibiotics because right. there's consequences, right? You know, and you just literally have to get people to the point of feeling the effects of the drug that you just gave them and how good it feels. And, you know, and I think the tools that you have contributed to and you help us teach are the feedback loops because p- patients used to say, I bet you're going to ask me if I did my exercises. And I'll always do a cocky gray cook move and say, I don't need to. I'll know in a minute. Oh, and no. once they realize that level of accountability is among us, they, they may have some excuses, but I'm like, you know, excuses aren't reasons, right? I use them too. And I have no right to do that. So you, I have, I've painted you into a corner. If you do what I ask you to do, I've got a really, really high percentage rate of being able to measure a change uh, for the better without a side effect in the other direction. See, if you closed a pain window but opened two DN windows, you wouldn't feel successful. I think a lot of people close pain windows but create dysfunction or put unnecessary limits on lifestyle and movement expression just so you stay asymptomatic. Every injury gets most people a slightly smaller life, but it's at such an aggregate incremental thing that all of a sudden you look up one day and you're 60 and you haven't skied in 10 years, but you still identify yourself as a skier. You ceased being a skier nine years ago. <laughs> no, I'm saying, you know, the line I use is like, I, I literally look at people and say, I have hundred percent success rate when you do your part. So don't be a stat. <laughs> don't be that stat. Don't be that right. one person. You know, and I've had like clients come in with their, you know, husbands or wives or friends into the clinic and the person that brought them in is advertising for me and saying like, if you don't do this, he'll fire you. He'll literally get rid of you. Uh, so so it, honestly, it's like, you know, one of the best jobs that I ever had was working at a sporting goods store. Uh, it's a chain in, in Canada called Sport Check. I and, thought it was just called Canadian Tire and Battery because you can get everything there from your pharmaceuticals to your tractor implements, right? <laughs> okay, funny story. Canadian <laughs> Tire just bought them out. <laughs> of course they did. They're Walmart. They're, yeah. So at SportCheck, I don't think they do this now, but we, um, we had this, uh, the, the company was called Forzani Group. And we had to go through this thing called Forzani University. Okay. So they actually taught us how to be salespeople and how not to stand. And when a client walks in, say, hi, what can I help you with? Because what is the client going to say? When you, go to, when you go into a clothing store, you know, when the person says, what can I help you with today? What are you going to say? 
oh, I'm just looking. Of course. As soon as they say that, you say that, the, the door just got closed. That person can't come back to you and ask the question. So they'll say things like to us like, you know, hey, did you watch the game last night? Something completely unrelated. Or I like your shoes. Or like, wow, there's weather. Or something completely related that catches people off guard. And so a big part of our role as health and wellness facilitators is to make that human connection. My clients become a part of my family. I know all their birthdays. I know when they're going on vacation. I ask, you know, when they come and sit down on the second session, I'm like, first and foremost, most importantly, how are the kids doing? How was Thanksgiving? We just had Thanksgiving here in Canada. You know, so you make that personal relationship. And that was a light that went off for me when I was in high school and I went and shadowed a physical therapist that had been in practice for 46 years. Mm-hmm. A lady named Maureen Geldart. Okay. And Maureen was in Schwartz Orthopedics, and she had a older clientele, older population. She saw everybody, but the majority of people were in like from mid-40s to mid-70s and a bit older. And when the person came in, now these were like pre-COVID days, <laughs> she would sit right next to the client on the examination table or, you know, in front of them when they were sitting and she would literally grab their hand and start like rubbing their hand like your grandmother would. And she would, they would have these conversations about the farmer's market or like, she just knew people. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Versus this like black and white doctor walks in with a lab coat, you know, buried in their clipboard. They're not even making eye contact with you. And I just realized like, and she didn't do that much, but the effects were incredible. So I've done more work on myself and human psychology and understanding behavior and personality and stuff. And honestly, when you get somebody on your team, they want to be part of the journey. And they're the ones that say, when can I come back? I feel so good. I want to show you. And so in our space, it happens from that first, we plant the seed and go, okay, this is where we're leaving things. Now I'm going to trust that you're going to take this plan and carry it through. And by the way, I want to see you in, uh, in, uh, in a, you know, two to three months from now, or when the snow starts coming down, come and see me. I have a client that I've seen for 11 years. I have never treated this person ever. So what, what do I think? He's come in, he's done a screen, he's gone away. Three weeks later, comes back. I had to like push him to like eight weeks. I'm like, Rob, I don't need to see you, you know? And everybody at his tennis club knows that, oh, there's Rob doing his banads. <laughs> You're actually a service. <laughs> but you know, yeah. what, I, what I hear you telling people is, we're we're stuck in this social media marketing of our services thing, but that's literally what was laying on my heart when I started the business of movement. And Lee and I unpacked that book in a previous episode, but it's like expertise isn't just about knowing the evaluation and the treatment. That should be your default so you can connect. So what I hear you telling us is, you know, 
close cases kindly, deliver the goods kindly, and let people know who are already impressed with your service of your accessibility. Paul Hughes did this a long time ago. He had these cards he would give people on release or discharge or I'll see you in six months, but here's a card. It didn't give them a discount in services. But if they wanted to share, word of mouth, he called it care enough to share, it would give them, I think, a discount just on examination to remove that barrier of friction to say, I see you limping or I hear you complaining about your back. I got a guy and let me make it a little easier for you. So it wasn't a business card. It was care enough to share. And Paul would say, you probably have somebody that we can help hold this as long as you want. But when you see somebody who's sitting on the fence, use this to knock them, knock them over. And, and, you know, it it was a subtle, it was a subtle thing, but I really think that if, if, if I had to invest in my marketing budget or pay myself to sit with a patient an extra five minutes, I think the five minutes would pay off. It's the same money. I think the five minutes would pay off better. And that's what I, I hear you saying too. So the reason yeah. we have our systematic structure, our SFMA, our FMS, all our other tools is so you can use those as a craftsman, but the art is in relationship. You know, and a lot of our uh, clinicians here, like, you know, they're like, Hey, like shoot me an email. If you have any questions or concerns, you know, or, you know, anytime we have a few seconds or minutes here and there, we'll just like, well, I personally, like when I see somebody for the first time, I make a reminder in my note in three days, I will contact them. Hey, just checking in. How are things? Let me know if you have any questions. Hope you had a good weekend. No rush. Just mm-hmm. get back to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I just, you know, and I realized, oh my goodness. Like, so I just picked up a brand new car. There was contact made 24 hours later by the salesperson just checking in you're still enjoying your new car yep. there was an email sent 48 hours after yep. there was a survey sent six days later there was like you know so there's like you know this is not the end of our relationship right and a lot of people assume unless i have an appointment i don't have access to this person and now that will take up a little bit more time but you get so good and efficient at it that you know, it's a second nature. No, it, it actually puts you ahead of the game and, and just just a little level of transparency. Since midsummer, I've been dealing with quite a few medical problems and it's my own business, but the place that I've been going through to get all prodded and probed and tested and scoped and, and everything um, makes me reintroduce myself every time. They are more concerned about my birthday and my social security number. I have zero access. I have slow feedback and I really don't get any education. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not being a squeaky wheel. I'm getting on the conveyor belt. I'm letting them treat me like a widget. I'm getting in line because I know on the other side of that, they're collecting information and that's going to be shared with a physician that I actually respect. But I, I don't want anybody on this podcast, whether they're in the fitness end or the healthcare end, don't be part of that problem. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, go be a patient somewhere else right now. And we will create a medical or fitness reason to have a transaction with you. 
but no transformation will occur in you, which means that they're checking boxes, you're checking boxes, <laughs> you're 50 years old, you got your colonoscopy. Let's not check boxes. They, the entire world is checking boxes. They make you talk through a portal. They get back to you slow. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. But hopefully, you're seeing bits and pieces of, of what Banad's doing that have gotten him on this podcast and is the exact same reason a lot of other people will never be invited here. So <laughs> I don't, I don't want to close it like that, but you never lost your humanity, your compassion, your empathy, or your kindness. But I also think having all that stuff and not being systematic and not being a sniper is equally bad. I didn't come yeah, here for a absolutely. best friend, but I found one. Right. I, so, so I know a lot of people are so open and, and easily accessible, but they're not closing cases. So close cases, deliver the goods, but distinguish yourself on the other side of that systemization, I think is, is what, yeah. is what you're teaching. Hang on. Yep. Well, man, yeah, you know, like, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to add, like our bodies are the most important things we have. Like imagine going, walking on the street and just grabbing a hold of someone's leg. You just met them. You'd be tossed in jail. <laughs> but the same thing happens at our clinics. You meet someone for the first time and you're grabbing their leg. So it's the highest honor. And, you know, I think like there's got to be that like extra layer of respect and I'm getting to know you and I'm here for you. And I just feel like that'll just bring down the wall, the barrier in between it, it, and... Well, you, you appreciate the level of vulnerability and you also mm -hmm. take the time to earn the right to interact with that. And, and the, my entire summer experience in this healthcare that I don't want to be has not acknowledged my vulnerability or my fear or anything. And I just, I suck it up. I know, I know how to deal in, in harsh environments. That's not hard to do, but I will never refer there. And as soon as we're done with this course, I will never go back. There are, there are way more options. Now, I'm invested, and I'm going to get through it, and I'm, I'm not going to be the difficult patient because it's like you know uh, yelling at your waitress. You're just going to get her to spit in your food behind scene. It's not going to make anything better. She's just going to you know stick her thumb in your coffee. So, But no, I, I, um, one last thing. Any good books that, that you've read that we should add to our list this summer or any Ooh. good trips we should take that would give us an equal amount? I know I got to come see you and you got to come see me, but for our yes. listeners, what, what do you got that they can have as a takeaway other than all this wonderful pearls and practice? Uh, you know, I don't know, probably completely unrelated to our field, but uh, I'm reading Trevor Noah's book called Born a Crime. Ah. And it's, Wow. Like you want to talk about human touch and, you know, moving someone. Yeah. Like highly, highly recommended. He's, he's a smart guy. And I honestly think that he's taking a very sensitive subject and adding intelligent humor to it. And he holds a mirror up to society. We can't fix the problem he came through, came through, but we can sure not cause it again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. So that's, that's the book. And, I had the, uh, 
uh, absolute honor of, uh, well, I, I turned 40 this year and, uh, I'm a big tennis fan. So my wife, uh, surprised me with a trip to the French open in Paris. Wow. Uh, All right. Roland Garros. So did that. And then <laughs> I got hooked on the grand slam, uh, thing. So I, I was in New York for the U S open, uh, you know, with Serena packing it in. And, uh, so, um, yeah, those are my two trips that I went on and, uh, um, and I'm, and I'm off to Tokyo to deliver, uh, your message at the end of November, Gray, doing a, uh, SFMA level two. Well, we're, we're in Tokyo a month before, so I'm going to, I'm going to be your opening act this time. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and by the way, um, Andy shared this with me back when the Venus and Serena movie, King Richard came out about their dad. Did you see that? Yes, of course. Of um, course. about three years after that movie ends, because the movie ends with Venus getting her contract with Reebok, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I was down there at West Palm Beach as a part of Venus's Reebok entourage doing a movement yeah. screen on, I think, an yeah. eight, 17 or 18-year-old Venus. And wow. King Richard basically said, what are you going to do for Serena. And I'm like, well, I work for Reebok. She's got a Puma contract. He's like, if you work with one, you got to work with both. I'm like, doesn't matter to me. I can screen two people almost as quick as I can screen one. And I looked at the Reebok handlers I had and said, do you mind? It's like, no, if this is the way to get it done. I'm like, because we're going to need Serena to do some of this back and forth. We're going to do it anyway. So I got a chance to movement screen those two girls. And the, the two keys that I walked away with I'm sure glad they didn't play a lot of junior tennis and I'm sure glad they hadn't been in the weight room all this time because I would have found way worse screens with unnecessary yeah. competition or unnecessary kinesiology. <laughs> Let go. these girls yeah. move and play. And one other question about your tennis game, open or closed stance? Uh, I'm an open stance. Can I, can I offer one tidbit? Cause I guarantee you could kill me in tennis, but one thing I've done for open stance, maybe power players, is yeah. find a player that you can handily manage yeah. and disadvantage yourself with two-hand close stance, both forehand and backhand. Um, okay. And then, and then in the very last part of that challenge, only go power open stance when you absolutely need it. And it'll be tight, like taking the leg weights off. But if I really want to get your leg, if, if you never want to come in my gym and do med ball throws, chops and lifts, yeah, yeah. just go disadvantage yourself with closed stance, Bjorn Borg, two hands on the racket, both ways, even get a racket built that gives you a comfortable double grip and, yeah. and, disadvantage yourself let somebody who can't beat you have the pleasure of beating you and then you yeah. beat them with a disadvantage and watch the competitive advantage it gives you that's just that's so interesting you said that because i was taking uh, i was hitting with a pro on uh saturday and uh he he wants to move me to a close stance i'm He's not like, doing it you gotta try yeah i'm not doing it to uh well we're gonna get a durability factor but it's gonna give you a perspective because if you start that way you're going to yeah. telegraph to most players a disadvantage. Because think if you're on the other side and you see a guy playing like that, right? 
You have yeah. no idea he's got nitrous oxide in, in the passenger seat. It's coming, but if you can switch from a power position to a very functional, leggy, closed position, one day you're yeah. going to shred your legs, and one day you're going to shred your core and arm. <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's a, it's a, I've done it with a few pros that have come my way, and, and I, yeah. I don't know any more about tennis than I do golf, but I do know a way to create a self-limiting situation that keeps you out of a lot of functional exercise and puts you back into yeah. functional tennis. I but, love it. All right, brother. I love it. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure, and you inspire me, and good God, man. Thanks for doing what you've done for us. Thank you so much, Gray. Well, I got, I got to say the same thing to you. So yep. uh, it's, been a, it's been an awesome journey, and I look forward to many, many more years. Well, God must like you because you live in a postcard and you drive fast cars. So, <laughs> but thanks, thanks again, Greg. man. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> that will do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute and subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your own movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.